Firstly, can I just say it is a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I've followed the I've followed Bay Vineyard since its very beginning, so it is an honour to to sit here with you and see to see such a vibrant community. I did say to Sam that if some of my people were sitting in this room as some of this was playing out, they'd be breaking out in a cold sweat. Uh, but it was wonderful just to see the see and hear the joy and the fun that was going on. And where's where's Bruce? Who did communion just before? Thank you, Bruce. I uh, found myself getting teary there. I'm finding myself getting teary. I'm coming off a, a quite a, what has been a really stressful year, and I've felt like I've been in the trenches. So to sit with uh, Farno, to sit with family and talk, and just hear a word, word of kindness uh, was just really moving. And I am I'm tired. If I'm really honest, honest with you, after this year, I'm, I'm tired. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, but... I never get teary in front of groups. I'm a controlled public speaker, uh, so this could get really loose. But as you may have picked up, <laughs> we specialise in this. <laughs> but yeah, my my upbringing. So I my mum was introduced to. I'll give you the kind of faith the faith side of my life. Uh, my mum was introduced to church when I was five years old. It was hyper Pentecostal. Uh, there was stuff going on in the early eighties when my mum was introduced to church, and some churches that was just really out there. Uh, I remember people literally barking in church like like dogs, not to be funny about taking up uh, the offering. <laughs> But, but as a, they described it as a move of the spirit, like it was full blown swinging, literally swinging in the rafters, Pentecostal. And my mother uh, has some mental illnesses. She suffers from mild schizophrenia. So sometimes she hears voices in her head and doesn't know every now and then what's real and what's not. Uh, she fades in and out of reality sometimes. She suffers from what we would popularly call split personality disorder. So for her, that exhibits and that she will fly into a rage, but she doesn't feel that rage. Her base personality observes that rage happening, but she doesn't feel it. It's like she's in the body as that rage is uh, taking place. She was diagnosed with a clinical depression when I was really young. Now, this is the early 80s. Mental health in New Zealand was not understood uh, at all, and she had not seen anybody about this stuff as possible mental health issues. So you can imagine throwing that into a really Pentecostal environment, how that stuff was interpreted. Uh, so I remember going around to, and I'm aware that there are small ears in the room, so I'm not going to give a lot of detail, but I remember going around to people's houses after church as a little boy, and them uh, attempting exorcisms on my mother. And of course, it wouldn't work because this is mental illness. But that formed my very early impression of the church. Uh, and it formed my very early impression of the spirit. Because, of course, it was all wrapped in very uh, spiritual language. These people were doing their best that they could with the tools that they, that they had. So I harbor absolutely no resentment. And because my mum had all these mental illnesses, she didn't know how to read social situations. So it wouldn't take long for her to feel offended in a church or feel like somebody had offended her. So, And because she didn't have the tools to sort that out, she would just move to another church. So I grew up faithfully going to church with my mother all through my childhood and my uh, teen years and experienced the whole gamut. I was telling Matt and Elise about part of it last night when we were in the uh, Mormon church in my intermediate years and getting baptized for the dead at the temple. I am probably the most baptized person you will ever meet. 
literally, I think about 28 times. First as a baby, as an Anglican, then as a Mormon when I was 12, then 25 dead people in the temple I got baptized for. And then when I got serious about my faith in the apostolic church, I was about 20 years old. I was like, well, what do you do if you're going to be serious about your faith? You get baptized because uh, I was well practiced. So I got baptized there. Um, and then spend a little bit of time. Where? Did you? I looked at the river when I was there, and I was like, "There's eels. I'm not gonna get. I'm not gonna get baptized in that water." <laughs> uh, and yeah, got serious about my faith, and <laughs> got serious about my faith in the Apostolic Church, and slowly uh, ended up dealing to some stuff and moved into the Wesleyan Methodist Church, and that was like coming home. So I got ordained as a Wesleyan Methodist minister. So why are you here this weekend, Frank? And what happened ten years ago that kind of makes this significant. Uh, I'm here because of you. <laughs> no, I, well, sort of. I am here because I'm off to Kupal Monastery uh, tomorrow to spend the week. And I'm off to Kupal Monastery because I discovered something there 10 years ago, the last time that I was there, that I feel like I need to immerse myself back uh, into. I feel like the things that I've been dealing with this year have dealt to some of my rhythms and throw in much of who I am in my inner world and what I think God wants me to be and how we're to commune together. I think that's been thrown off kilter. So heading back to the monastery is a chance to hit uh, reset on some of that stuff. Can you tell us about the um, journey going into that first experience of Kopor and, and, and like what kind of made that? Because I know that that was a hugely significant moment 10 years ago in that monastery for you. Uh, in terms of your journey with Jesus and encountering the Spirit. Um, and we had some very interesting conversations out of that, on the other side of that. But can you tell us what led up to that first trip? Yeah, uh, I was working for Tear Fund, so it was 2012. I was working for Tear Fund. I'm sure many of you have heard of Tear Fund, International Aid and Development Agency. I worked in their education department, teaching churches about what biblical justice looks like. Uh, and up until then, I would say that my faith was very much based on the difference that I could see myself making in the world. If I could see myself making a difference, then God and I were good, and my faith was good. Uh, so back in my radio days on Life FM, if I could hear people having aha moments when I was doing talk back on a Sunday night, then I felt like I was doing my job. If someone felt like they understood the faith a little bit more, or they're rethinking something because of something that I said, we're good. Uh, and then at Tear Fund, it would have been based on how many children I could get sponsored, uh, how many churches were taking up education around uh, human trafficking, how much money we were raising in, in regards to that. But I had this wonderful opportunity to go over to the Holy Land, Israel and Palestine. Most of that trip was spent in Palestinian uh, territory with Palestinian Christians, which I know for some people is an oxymoron, but it's true. There are wonderful Palestinian Christians. They're amazing, amazing people. And uh, it was the place away from home, away from New Zealand, that I have studied the most. I, I understand it, or thought I understood it geopolitically, the social setting, how the religions interact together, the history. Uh, and I think if you talk to anybody who gets involved in anything that's about trying to make the world a better place, I think if you dove down subconsciously, certainly with me, and you asked, well, why do you think these problems are there? because they haven't listened to me. Uh, I've got the answer. 
So I stepped into Israel-Palestine, got strip-searched at Hong Kong airport on the way in because for some strange reason, this young guy from uh, Tiaraha and the Waikato was seen as some sort of security threat, so I got uh, strip-searched. Do we want to tell a story about... All right, so a quick story. I'm going to tell this really fast because we need to cram in some really important stuff. This isn't really important. But flew into Tel Aviv at some ungodly hour of the morning, and this Palestinian Christian guy had been arranged to pick me up. So he picked me up at the airport, and to get from Tel Aviv to Bethlehem, you've got to go up into the hills. And it was around March, so it was winter, and it was snowing up in the hills. So he picks me up in this rickety little vehicle, and we're driving up from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to go into Bethlehem. And uh, we're driving along, and we start to get to the snow. His car starts sliding around a little bit. He's got the stereo blaring with some worship music on. And he leans over to me at one point. This is not glorifying this. I don't drink much. But he says, do you like beer? I'm like, I like beer. Do you like whiskey? I like whiskey. He says, well, why don't you come around to my house tonight? This is a complete stranger. Why don't you come around to my house tonight and we'll have a few drinks together? Because Palestinians are great at hospitality. We love to show people how hospitable we are. I said, that sounds fantastic. Uh, So got to my uh, hotel in Bethlehem after driving through the wall and some young Israeli with a big gun checking my passport. Slept for much of the day. Woke up. It was snowing in Bethlehem which is magic. Uh, So I spent some time wandering around Bethlehem. Then I gave him a call. I said, I'd love to come in and hang out with you this evening. So he said, good. We'll go to my cousin's shop. We'll buy some drinks and some snacks, and then we'll hang out together. So he picked me up. We went to his cousin's shop. Uh, He bought a whole lot of snacks and drinks. Wouldn't let me pay for any of it. Then we went around to his house. I did not understand uh, Palestinian hospitality at this point, and how often you have to say no before they really get the message that you don't want another thing that they're trying to give to you, because they just sound offended when they hand you a thing, and you go, no, I've had enough. So he kept handing me drinks, and I, of course, am in a stranger's house in a foreign country and did not want to say no, 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 uh, but that's what I should have said, uh, and he wasn't drinking anything. <laughs> And then he gets a call, and he goes, he goes to me, we've got to go back into Jerusalem. We're now middle of the night. We've got to go back into Jerusalem and pick up my cousin. So I go, oh, okay, <laughs> I've got to do this. So we get in the car. We drive back through the checkpoint. There's a quick security check. We're in Jerusalem. It's middle of the night, and I've got a really small bladder. And I said to him, I'm busting. I really need to go. And he's like, well, there's no public toilets open at this time of night for security reasons. And I said, well, if we don't find somewhere, it's not going to be good for your car. <laughs> and he goes, okay, I'll find us somewhere. So he takes us to this secluded little spot, and he points up. He stops the car, and he points up to this nice little area, and he goes, go up there. So I go up there. I do what I need to do. I come back. It's great relief. And I tell him, thank you. That was a real relief. And he goes, do you know where we are? I said, absolutely no idea. He said, that's the ancient wall of Jerusalem. (laughs) And he must have seen the horror descend on my face because then he tries to make it all better. He goes, this is true. He goes, don't worry, Jesus probably did it too. (laughs) That was my first night in the Holy Land. Uh, (laughs) And... (laughs) 
the next couple of weeks were spent more seriously. The next couple of weeks were spent getting to know that conflict, getting to know that conflict on both sides. So talking to Palestinians who have to go through checkpoints every single day to, to move around, talking to young Israeli soldiers who are stationed in Palestine and have to deal with the angst that rises at any possible point. I talked to Israelis in Israel who are within reach of the rockets that get fired out of, of Gaza. And I got to the point where I'm like, there is, there is nothing I can do here. This thing is so entrenched. I can't see any way forward for this. I've, I felt absolutely useless for the first time in my life. Like really useless. Now, if my faith is based on the difference that I can see myself making, and I cannot see myself having any ability to make a difference, then what is my faith? I remember sitting in the Church of the Nativity, and it sounds wonderfully holy. It's one of the oldest churches in the world, the grotto, uh, the cave where Jesus is supposedly, was supposedly born, has been the longest standing place of, of Christian worship uh, in history. So continuous worship has gone on there for ever since Constantine's mother said this is the spot. So we're talking 1,700 years, if not longer, because she would have been basing that on local story. And I was in the church in the nativity, and the priests were doing their liturgy of the hours. It's worth looking that up if you want continuous prayer in your life, the liturgy of the hours. And they were waving the incense around. They were doing it in Arabic because in Orthodox you can do it in the local language. There's icons. You literally walk up to the walls in the church in the nativity, and you can smell the incense that's been burning in there for centuries and centuries. And the pilgrims were coming in, going under the cave to kiss the spot where Jesus was born. It was pre-COVID, so nobody... <laughs> got COVID from kissing that spot. I remember standing there thinking, I should pray. I should pray because this situation, surely only God can do something. I should pray. And I had no words because at the time, prayer for me was just telling God some stuff that needed to happen because it was all about action. And I had nothing. And I lost any expectation in that moment that I could or should do anything. I lost any expectation that God could or should do anything. I didn't, I didn't lose my belief in God. I just stood there in silence, like just empty, <laughs> somewhat lost. And it felt really free. Like oh, this burden had been lifted from my shoulders. I'm just useless. Uh, which sounds really negative. So I came back and did what any normal person would do. I went and spent a week at a monastery, Kupua, and it was the middle of winter. You can see the snow on the uh, hills, and wove myself into their prayer rhythm and really wanted to get to know silence. Now, when you first start doing silence properly, it's really hard. Uh, for some of you, it might have been a peaceful journey, I don't know, but I thought I was going insane. And since my family has a history of mental illness, I was like, is this me being schizophrenic? Uh, I was worried. Um, <laughs> but it was, it, was a, it was a hard experience, but it was also a wonderful experience. Uh, deciding that I wanted to see the world with the lens that God sees the world. And the only way that I can do that is if I just stay in a place of prayer all the time. But that passage that we read, I, uh, I was reading through the book of Job. This time I'm going to be reading through uh, Colossians while I'm out at the monastery. But I felt like Job was the one to read. So am I jumping ahead too far? No, it's great. All right. So 
I felt like I should read the book of Job. And I was staying in the little hermitage down the back of the monastery, which is kind of this rickety little thing. But I'm like, if I'm going to go to a monastery, I'm going to do it hard. So we're staying in the hermitage down the back. There were so many flies in the middle of winter. These big, hardy flies, and there were so many of them. But I was reading through the book of Job. And that, there was this one point where I felt like God was telling me to go out and read the last few chapters where God turns up. And God turns up and tells Job all about it, all about who he is. And I felt like I should go and stand outside. And the, it was really stormy. The rain was literally, it was going sideways. And I looked out there and went, that would be really stupid going and standing out there and reading the book of Job. But I decided to do it anyway. It sounds somewhat romantic when I've told this story before. I felt like I was supposed to read the last chapters of Job. That's good. Yeah. But I've told other people, and they're like, that's so awesome. I'm like, but it's not. There's no movie music going on. It's not like I have enough here that it was blowing sideways as I read Job. I just felt like an idiot. I was standing outside. It was cold. I was trying to hold the, the pages of the Bible open. And then we get to that bit where Job responds to God. Actually, is it possible to bring those passages up? It's a bit awkward trying to open my Bible. And we get to this. And God has laid out who he is, the all-powerful, the almighty. And I was standing out in this storm, having thought I was somebody. You know, I, my, my show on Life FM, just the little talkback show, had about 10,000 listeners, which in radio land is really small numbers, but in Christian land, that's relatively significant. I did the night show for a couple of years. I did the drive show couple, for a couple of years. I was being invited to churches to speak about justice and international issues. I was doing stuff on uh, ZB by this time as well, and we're talking much bigger audience. So there's some status in that stuff. And then God lays it out, and we get to this, and I was just dumbstruck. Standing out there in the storm, I know that you can do all things. And it felt like these were words that I was speaking back to God. And know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me that I did not know. Here and I will speak. I'll question you and you declare to me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And there's the bit in the previous passage where Job talks about putting his hand over his mouth, engaging in silence in the face of, of God. And it totally shifted my sense of faith. I still have those inclinations. I still get the ego when I talk about how many people listen to me on the radio. I still want to see the difference that I'm making in the world. And I want the status that comes with that. But then I get reminded time and time again of this, and that ultimately everything I do is useless in the face of God, and that actually all he wants is to hang out with me, to hang out with us, and to be shaped in the silence, to be shaped in the prayer with us continually coming back. And then as he shapes us, whatever life flows out of that, that's the life that he, he wants from us. I remember when you came back from that retreat, like we'd hung out at Soul Survivor things and done a few things together before then. And by your own admission, you're like, I don't really get you charismatics. Like, you know, I don't. Uh, and I remember you came back from that retreat, and especially when you were telling me about the story 
about their moment in the Hermitage, which does sound movie-esque, man. It does, I know it's, it's, it was a horrible moment, it sounds amazing. Um, but I just remember you saying to me, like, oh, I get you guys. Like, I get you guys and the whole Holy Spirit thing all of a sudden. Can you help tease out a little bit more what happened in that thing that shifted some stuff? You particularly around the things of the Spirit, which we're pretty passionate about in this environment. Uh, you know, in terms of what, what you definitely had a before and after thing from that moment. Yeah, I did. And actually, uh, to be honest, Sam's been part of that uh, journey in my life too. So I mentioned the stuff that went on for me as a kid. That just seeded a whole lot of anger about Pentecostalism. And then I would hear anything about the Spirit and I would just feel triggered. Uh, and I would get really skeptical and trying to find what was wrong in it. So there was the Holy Trinity, but really for me it was just Father and Son. The Spirit kind of... Well, cool, I kind of get that idea, but I didn't really get that idea. Uh, and uh, meeting Sam was actually a big part of shifting that for me because I had all these issues with stuff that I could see because uh, of my childhood and the Pentecostal charismatic arm of our beautiful church. Uh, I won't go into what I thought the issues were. And then meeting Sam was like, oh, you're not all like that? <laughs> You're not all really into money. Uh, you're not all really into celebrity and honor culture and all these other things that, that seem to get tagged on. You're actually just interested in the spirit. So Sam was a, a big part of causing some cognitive dissonance that then opened the, do the door so that I could hear things differently. But in going to the monastery, I started reading mystics and contemplatives who would talk about the spirit and this desire for union with God. And then the contemplative practices are just about opening our heart when Jesus is knocking, when the Spirit is knocking. It's about making space where a world, the world around us wants to distract us all the time and pull us away from that first love. And so in the contemplatives and the mystics, I heard you Pentecostals. It was like, they're saying the same thing, just with slightly different language. Uh, so it, com it completely opened things up to the point where I actually think in the time that we find ourselves and what the church needs to be focusing on, uh, I think one of the perfect marriages at the moment is those with a Pentecostal sensibility, those who truly believe that the Spirit is present and active and that we can open our lives up to the Spirit. <laughs> Taking that and marrying it to the traditions that the church has developed over 2,000 years, where they've said there's a deep, rich well here and liturgy, and sacrament, and quiet prayer, and slowing down. Marrying those things together, I think, is the perfect, perfect marriage. So I, I walk into a space like this, and I see the liturgy, and I go, oh, you've added depth and richness here. And then I've been in Anglican churches where they've got the liturgy, which I adore, Catholic churches, and I adore that, and I adore their high view of the sacrament. But then I hear ministers who have been saying it their whole life, and they just work through it really quickly, forgetting that what they have is a richness of prayer here. And if only they could grasp the idea that the Spirit is here that the Spirit is truly present at the communion table, that the words of the Spirit are in this liturgy. Imagine if you could put those things together. So I see movement going on on both sides of that equation where they're drawing from each other. I think it's, I think it's a perfect marriage. And so since then, um, not since, well, yeah, really since that moment 10 years ago, you've been, I, I've observed you've been super intentional around your own um, private life of prayer and the rhythms that you've built. Um, can you just help us, well, I just, I just, I'm curious, tell us what that's looked like, how that's developed over the years, um, 
Yeah, and on your best day, what that can, can look like? Yeah, on my best days. <laughs> so yeah, when we, it's, and we say that because we all, we're all on a journey here. Yeah. Least, you know, so, <laughs> when it's healthy, and I've got to admit, it's, it's come off the... Uh, it's come. We, we, we talk about falling off the wagon, which is why everyone thinks we're alcoholics <laughs> and cafes around us, because every time we hold each other accountable, we're talking about getting on the okay. wagon. Yeah. Well, when it comes to my spiritual rhythms, yeah, this year I've probably come off the, the wagon a little bit, and I've discovered the well's not as deep as I thought it was. Uh, but when it's good, um, and this isn't what you have to do, uh, when it's good, I rise at 5 a.m., and there's some words that come out of my mouth pretty much straight away. So just to normalize this, yeah. do you wake up feeling like a million bucks and whistling, or do you feel like me? Well, like barely. <laughs> Actually, no, actually, I'm a, I'm a terrible sleeper. No, no, so, no, no, hang on. So usually, uh, at the moment, I'm actually waking up at like 4, 4.30 and just feeling really frustrated. So I actually get to 5 o'clock and I'm annoyed. <laughs> I'm annoyed that I've woken up that early. I want the alarm to wake me up. I feel like it's really honestly easier for morning people to follow Jesus. Is it <laughs> and then the words that I utter, or I try to utter first, and I have kind of finally got myself to the space where it happens, glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Uh, and then I um, head out into my lounge, I light a candle, I make some coffee, I sit down, and I sit in silence for a while. And then I have set prayers that I pray from prayer books. Uh, because one of the things that I needed to do coming back from Israel-Palestine was relearn how to pray. Because what I was doing was not prayer. It was just me telling God what I thought needed to happen. Now, there's a place for that in prayer, but it's not the whole of prayer. Whereas now I think prayer is where we open our lives to God so that he can transform us to see the world as he sees the world. That involves me shutting up a lot. Uh, but I needed to relearn how to pray. And so prayer books and words of liturgy gave me words to pray. And so I'll sit and I'll work my way through some prayers. Uh, and then I go and exercise. That's what it looks like when it's good, but it's not how it's looked for much of this year. So how long would that sort of time last in terms of silence and prayers? And About an hour, yeah. and then, then exercise. Uh, and it's, it's held me through some... Uh, it's held me through some tough things. Uh, like I, as a media chaplain, uh, I spend a lot of time sitting down and supporting media people, people who work in the media, people who have a faith, people who don't have a faith. Can I just say how epic, that's a Christian worldview with the media. So many, I'm so disappointed with Christians at the moment who love attacking the media, thinking that somehow we're going to change things for the kingdom of God. But how about we go and love those in the media and, uh, and have relationship with them. And uh, Frank and the media chaplaincy guys have done that. Now, they keep it under the radar because they want to be confidential, but they're having significant conversations with them. You know, uh, and I'm like, what a beautiful posture that now most of the media know that there's Christians there that are there to listen and pray and support. I'm not saying we shouldn't hold them to account. and, and we, we can, we, I'm not saying any of that. We're saying as followers of Jesus, how do we engage with media? First and foremost, we serve. We come and we listen and we care. What a witness. I'm so proud. That's a kingdom vision. And that's how things change. That's how things actually change. So, yeah, you've got a team. Very happy about it. 
So as part of that work, when the shooting happened in Christchurch, we knew that all the media were going to uh, fly in. And some of the people that we were connected with, we knew in Christchurch, were first on the scene. So my boss got in touch with me and he said, you need to fly down. I didn't want to be a third wheel. I didn't want to be a burden for anybody. So I kind of pushed back a little bit. But he pushed really hard and got me down there. So I walked into media huddles and offered them food and drink. And a lot of people offloaded. I sat down with uh, a couple of our... Christchurch journalists, uh, I think he won't mind me saying it, Logan Church, because Logan and I have talked about this uh, publicly, he was a Christchurch journalist for RNZ at the time. Logan was one of the first on the scene. When he fizzed, finished his shift at the end of that day, he had other people's blood on him because he'd been trying to help. I caught up with Logan the day after the shooting. We caught up for coffee. He'd been awake and working all night. He was jacked up on adrenaline, and I just worked on slowing things down with him. I put on my real radio voice, uh, talked slowly, and just helped him, helped bring him down a little bit, so then he could go out and do the next shift that he was he was going to do. And that was that was hard being in the middle of that. And I remember talking to my colleague Petra Bagist, who's one of our chaplains now as well. And Petra asked, "How do you how did?" How did you get through it without going insane? I said, because my morning and evening looked exactly the same on those days as it does when I'm at home. So the same press when I'm doing my ordinary life at home and when I'm in this situation. We're anchoring in that space with God and it looks exactly the same. So it's held me through some good times, but this year there was a lot more sustained stress around a particular event that we won't go into that just made it wobble. So Kupo is about coming back to that. Um, I, I mean, we were talking about this um, yesterday when we were hanging out, but, and our church knows this, but it's like the, my observation, and there's some data coming through, but um, is that for our under-45s or so, roughly, um, having an interior life with Jesus is so difficult because we have a billion dollar industry to pay to distract us and we haven't done a great job at, at discipling in churches. So for our under 45s, most of the folks really struggle with an interior life with Jesus. Now you all know that we're working pretty hard to tidy that up, but it's a long, long journey. Um, and then for our over 45s, it's very easy to kind of get stagnant and you have your thing but it kind of doesn't go much deeper a year in, year out, where the invitation of Jesus is to continue to, to grow that di- dynamic in our lives and to sink deeper into Him. Can you help unpack a little bit further around the centrality of, of that inner world of a life of prayer and scripture, especially at the place of silence and solitude, uh, and, and, you know, in a world that's just you know, causing our brains to fizz all the time, and how... You know, how healing and clarifying that can be as a spiritual discipline and how important it is now, but also what your suggestions would be for folks who want to yeah. go a bit deeper here. Yeah, I would say the, the one key pursuit of the Christian life is union with God. There's nothing, there's nothing else. That's, a, that's all we're doing, is pursuing union with God. We're seeking after God, and God is near to each of us. And then the life that we live is just a, simply a life that flows out of, out of that. Uh, but yeah, we've got a world that, that teaches you that life is about a million and one other things. And many of us, if I'm honest, have grown up in church life thinking that the Christian life is about a million and one other things too. It's about growing our churches. 
and it's about growing the programs of the churches, our churches, and then stressing out when we feel like we're not doing enough or we're not committed enough, uh, and just getting fully distracted from that pursuit of union with God. Everything that goes on in a church community's life is about moving us and growing us and deepening us in that union with God, and then that union that we have with each other as a community. So recognizing that we have a million and one distractions, it means that the emphasis on prayer, the emphasis on our inner life, the emphasis on our practices that turn us in the direction of union with God need to be really intentional and uh, deliberate. We can't just hope that it's going to happen. Uh, And it is a long journey. It's not a marathon of one great event. It's not a marathon of 21 days of prayer and fasting that you then finish with a meat fest, uh, brunch, dessert evening. (laughs) No, the celebration is great, but that 21 days is just a minor turning back in the direction of God. And then we do that time and time and time again. It is somewhat a monotonous journey, and there are times where that well feels fabulous, and you have these moments like at a monastery standing out in a storm. Then there are other days where you sit down, you do your set prayers, or you try to sit in silence, and your mind just goes all over the place, but you come back because you trust the God who is sitting there. So there's this thing, and it's hard for people to do if they're not uh, in a monastery, but there's, but it, it's a good indicator of a place to turn. There's this thing called the liturgy of the hours. So historic Christianity and all of our monasteries are built around a rhythm of prayer. They pray seven times a day. Uh, so they're continually turning their attention back to prayer. So then I went for myself, having experienced that, how could that look in my just my daily rhythm? And how could that look for everybody who lives a busy life? How could we engage that constant turning back to prayer? So there are a few ways to start that really simply if you're really at the beginning of that uh, journey. And I would usually want the phone put aside, but if someone's starting, there are a couple of apps that you can use that some of you might already be really familiar with. Uh, Lectio 365. And picking a time in the morning where you can do this that is comfortable for you. So it starts the thinking of your day. Uh, these apps take about 10 minutes. So sit with your coffee and just dedicate 10 minutes. That's it. Uh, And they'll lead you through. So Lectio 365 is one. Uh, The one that I most recommend to people is Pray As You Go, put out by the Jesuits in the UK, because it follows the church calendar. So when you're doing things like Advent, it'll be doing Advent as well. And it's 10 to 15 minutes. There's uh, scripture. There's a couple of questions for reflection. There's some music. It's a really good place to start. Yeah. yeah, and we've got lots of resources on that stuff. If you are um, new to our church, obviously we, we unpack a lot of that stuff in our building, our devotional life module that we've got uh, for our home churches. Um, I just keep, um, so just so you know guys, in um, five minutes the kids are going to come back in because our response this morning is that the kids have been learning to pray over the last, well they've been learning to pray for ages, but learning to pray for others over the last um, number of weeks to do what Jesus did. So um, this is going to be lovely. If you want today, as we finish in a second, um, the kids are going to come up the front. And if you want to receive a prayer of blessing from them, uh, we're going to invite you to come forward. And they're just going to lay hands on you and pray a little prayer of blessing over you. Which is, again, a lovely way to finish um, our 21 days of prayer and fasting season. And it's a lovely way of finishing this conversation.
Um, as you've been talking, Frank, like one of the um, books that we've been, a lot of us have been engaging in has been The um, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Coleman. Um, and that book keeps um, really um, jarring me, especially the opening riff where Altberg goes to Dallas Willard and says, what, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? And um, Dallas Willard says, you must, these pauses always before, Dallas Willard was very slow and he's a philosopher and a genius, but then he's like, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And then it was like, and then Altberg's like, oh, what else? He's like, that's it. If you want to have a life of interior depth, you must ruthlessly. And that word has been, like, I've read that book twice. I'm all over the practices and all that sort of thing. But that word keeps hitting me as a, as a word that, for at this cultural moment, the word's ruthless. <laughs> like, ruthlessly eliminating hurry in my life. So I had margin. I, uh, you know, we've talked often about the time thing. Uh, we joke about the morning person thing, but it's like the question isn't whether we have the time, it's how we prioritise our time. And so it's been beautiful watching a number of our crew go, I want to prioritise the mornings with Jesus, so that means I'm going to go to bed a little bit earlier. Shock horror, my lifestyle's changing a little bit to orientate my life around Jesus, which is actually what the whole thing's meant to be about. So yeah, on that, I like we joked about morning people. I'm not, I'm not a morning person. But because having been at the monastery, having had the experience in Israel, I was like, how am I going to weave this into my life? Where do I find the time for this? I had no time for it. I had to create time. So getting up early was the way that I created time, and it was hard. Like I mentioned getting up too early now, but again, that's because of stress levels, cortisol in my body at the moment. Like I'm not sleeping well. Part of the monastery is about trying to get that back too. But I created the time. It's not because I'm heroic. It's just I, I put it up as a top priority. And one of the reasons I did, too, was because Jesus did. Like, you know, I want to justify my busyness. You know, you ask people, how are you? Oh, busy. But we say that as if we're some sort of martyr. And we kind of, there's this internal celebration of that phrase. How are you doing? Busy. Oh, we, we actually feed off that. There's this martyrdom that goes with it. It's a terrible answer to a question, how are you? Busy. It's a, te- it's a terrible answer. Jesus and Luke, can you, have you got the passage there? Uh, it, was a, it would have been in the questions. I can't remember exactly what the reference was. But Jesus and Luke, you don't need to read it. Jesus and Luke has just healed somebody. And so then the word spreads about what he's done, and all these people turn up to get healed. Like, it's really busy. Now, I would imagine that if you're anything like me, it's like, okay, now we've got to go until we're spent because all these people need us, and we're going to give them our time. Everybody who needs our time, we're going to give it because there's a sense of self-importance that goes with it. And then we justify it, and all we're serving. We justify it in Christian language. It says, so the crowds came, but Jesus went away to deserted places to pray. And there are different translations, but I love the translations that give us the but. But Jesus went away to deserted places to pray. The only way he was able to give himself to the world around him was out of his union with the Father. And yet here I am thinking that I don't need that. That's baloney. If you want to live the Christian life, it starts with our union with God. As we come into Lent, Frank, um, it's beautiful kind of bringing it back to Jesus because 
Um, you know, we say the best thing about following Jesus is Jesus. Yes. And tell us why he fascinates you, why you're devoted to him. Tell us why you're captivated by Jesus. Tell us what Jesus means to you. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it sounds cliche, but Jesus is everything. Uh, when I, I grew up angry at the church. I was involved in uh, Amway for a little while, as in my late teens. Hey, <laughs> no, that's a legitimate response. Um, and I loved hanging out with the people. And the whole group that I was involved with were all Christian. Man, Amway, I went to an Amway conference not because I actually went to work at the stadium where it was being run, yeah. so I wasn't there. And it shocked me how close that is to a Pentecostal. Oh, That is freaky similar. They had a worship, like, effectively a covers worship band. Yeah. And then, like... Yeah, and then inspirational talks, and... and the group that I was part of were all Christian. So then, when we'd have weekend conferences, the Sunday morning would be a service, wow. like, like literally. Uh, and they, because I grew up in a um, single parent home on the DPB, like my my life was just seemed really small. There wasn't much prospect. They took us to open homes of like really big houses. They took us into car dealerships, and I got to sit in like Mercedes and BMW. On it, this is amazing. Um, but and it totally totally reoriented my sense of of the world. Uh, and now I'm lament that it was all about the money, but it totally gave me a different perspective. But I remember this church service happening one conference and uh, they had this Australian speaker over and he showed a video of the crucifixion of Jesus and then he asked everybody in the auditorium who was a Christian to stand up oh, terrible thing to do but he did it if you're, in a, if you're a Christian here stand up and I stood up because I'd played the part my whole life and I felt in that moment like I was telling a big fat lie that this wasn't actually me because I was angry about the faith and angry about the church and I went to the people who would bring me along regularly and I said, look, I don't make you any money at all. I just like hanging out. Why do you keep bringing me? And they saw something in me that I couldn't see. But rather than trying to say the why, they said, go and read the Gospel of Luke. Most socially minded gospel. Uh, so to give that to a kid who'd grown up on the DPB was really smart. Uh, and I was like, well, there's nothing here. I've been listening to sermons my whole life. There's nothing. And I read through the Gospel of Luke. Sorry, I'll be really quick, Jen. I read through the Gospel of Luke and saw Jesus in a way that I hadn't seen before. And I'm like, why didn't anybody tell me about this guy? They had. I just hadn't been listening. And I saw Jesus pulling people like me into the center of the story. And then I saw him die for them and then rise again and, and just give them a whole new life. And I'm like, well, if he's going to do that, I'm going to follow. And then the Jesus that I've discovered since is just mind-blowing. In our church, we follow the Revised Common Lectionary. So we go through a whole gospel all year. So we've just, as we come to the end of Ordinary Time, we're finishing the gospel of Luke. So next year we'll be in the gospel of Matthew for the whole year. We've been doing that for years now. So it's Jesus stories. Every single Sunday, we're immersed in Jesus, and every single time, the story lights me up. Um, and I, do, I just, I want to, it sounds juvenile, I just want, I want to look like Jesus. I want people who don't know Jesus, when they hang out with me, whether they can name it or not, to reflect something of, of having encountered Jesus in some way.